we begin something new here today, as you see on the stage. We asked you for shovels the last few weeks, and you all responded, and we have made them pretty. And I have figured out how to make my family's Christmas card. If I just stand right here um, and do this, look right here, it'll be a wonderful Christmas card to send out with my name on it. So anyway, someone pointed that out after, after first service, that if you look at it just right, it says, Dig Chris. So I, don't, I didn't do that on purpose. I am not really aiming for all that attention, uh, but whatever, if it works for my wife, I'll take that. So, okay. And so um, subliminal messages to the wife during the sermon. So, um, so anyway, but we're starting a new series today called Digging Christmas. And we have chosen that theme in, on purpose. Um, Holding on to faith is not always an easy thing to do, especially in this world. Uh, you can't turn on the internet. Uh, I guess you turn on the internet. Get on the internet, turn on TV, uh, read things, uh, go to work, go to school. Somebody is attacking the faith that, that probably you have been given as a young person, as an adult, that has been reaffirmed to you maybe here, but yet that continues to be attacked in, at various different levels. Um, for various different reasons. And so this Christmas season, we're going to do something a little different than I think I've ever done in a Christmas season. And so uh, I, I think I'm excited about it. Well, I'll tell you after the sermon if I'm still excited about it, okay? And so we uh, are, th th we're in a, a bigger umbrella of sermon series as we've been talking about growing, right? We as a church want everybody that we can influence to just become a more faithful follower of Jesus, whatever step that may be for them to go next. And, and so we've looked over the last few years at the idea of knowing Christ and and belonging to him and to his people. And this year, it's just the bigger idea of just growing. How do I grow in Christ? And so we've, we've kind of focused on being a praying person. And if you're going to be a praying person who's praying, God, your will be done in my life, then you're going to need courage. And so we talked about being a courageous person to the life of Joshua. And if we're going to become like God, we've got to learn to be generous. And so uh, we've talked about that the last few weeks here. And then today, I want to kind of take this, this uh, approach uh, to our Christmas season. I want to encourage us to be a confident people. Being able to say, you know what, I'm confident about what I believe in, why I believe in it, and it's not just some random thing I've fallen into, but there's some, some reasoning, some thought, some understanding that goes into why I believe in Christ, why I believe in him, and what he has done for me and in this world. And so we're going to uh, approach Christmas from that per perspective, from more of an apologetic perspective. And so I hope that as we pull out our shovels and we dig into not only God's word, but history and archaeology and all kinds of things, that that will be a blessing to you. So maybe um, if you're a person who maybe is just coming here, checking this out, skeptical, doubtful, maybe we can nudge you a little bit closer to belief. Or if you're somebody who's on the fence, um, maybe we can help you over the fence. If you're somebody who's already over the fence, but yet you're just kind of feeling beat down and discouraged and confused by a lot of things you see in here, hopefully we can reinforce that and build confidence in our faith uh, because holding on to faith is a hard thing. I don't know if you saw this, this video this week. I think most of us probably did. But there's a guy by the name of Chris Gursky. He and his wife took a vacation to Switzerland. And they decided on his first day of vacation, he would go hang gliding. Did you see this video? He, and his, if you, uh, as this video comes up, you're going to notice that the guy who's in charge is all strapped in to hang glide like he is. And you'll note that Chris has something missing. Watch this. Okay. You'll notice as they take off, Chris didn't get hooked up that little pulley thing up there on top, and so they are flying down a mountain in Switzerland, and he is desperately hanging on for his life by holding on to whatever he possibly can, and 
I'm not going to show you all two, two, two minutes, two hours, be a long time, two minutes, 40 seconds of this, but watch it this afternoon if you haven't seen it, because it's terrifying as this poor man is trying to, uh, to hold on for dear life, because the only thing is just, just holding on, okay? So you can, you can stop that. So I'll leave, it, I'll leave it right there, okay? Will he survive or not? Dun, dun, dun. All right, so uh, um, he does live to tell about it, but he did have to have a surgery to put pins and things in his arms, and so it didn't end completely well for him. It wasn't the greatest start to his vacation. And so um, if you were thinking about giving the gift of hang gliding for Christmas, might want to check that out before you give that gift, okay? Unless you have someone that you want to give that gift to, and then there you go, so, okay? And so, uh, and so, um, and so but sometimes living out our faith, holding on to faith, a belief system that is doubted, uh, mocked, uh, torn down at every chance in a culture that you and I live in now, um, that can be a hard thing. And it can be very much like, I'm just trying to hold on here and I need a good grip, okay? And that's what I want us to do these next few weeks is try to reinforce the grip and say, you know what? The world may not understand it. The world may not like it, but this is why I believe what I believe. And so that's what we're going to dive into as we explore the theme of digging Christmas. My goal is this, right? if I was to summarize it in, in a, a term that maybe uh, my teenagers understand, I want to take you from this. I want to take you from meh to moved and motivated. Now, some of you get that, right? Some of you understand that, what I just put there. Some of you are like, what in the world is the preacher talking about? What language is that, okay? But if you have teenagers, you probably know the word meh. All right? I'm not saying it with the same attitude they do. I should bring teenagers up here and have you guys say it for us because you guys say it better than I can say it. But meh is, is this. Let me define what meh is. Meh is this. Somebody has made, added the word meh to the periodic table and they said this, that meh is the element of indifference. Right? You ask your person in your life, we won't pick on all the teenagers because I do it too sometimes, but they do it more. Um, but it, we ask those people in your life, how was your day? Meh. Yeah, that, that's that right? I say it. Meh. That's, that's, that's the word, right? I don't, but it's the element of indifference, okay? And if you don't understand that, somebody put a t-shirt with a definition of meh on it. That meh is the universal non-committal answer to every question ever posed. It's the answer that doesn't actually give an answer, all right? So that's, that's what we're talking about. I want to move you from meh to maybe motivated and moving in the right direction. If you want an animal to represent what meh is, here you go. There you go. There's meh in an animal, all right? There's a spirit animal. is a cat, okay? And so if you're a Christmas person, you haven't put your Christmas lights up and don't feel in the mood for it, just feeling different to it, here you go. You can do this this year. Meh. I just don't feel up to it, right? Here's what I got. That's all I got this year. If you're on Facebook, Facebook's got the thumbs up like. You can do this for Facebook instead. You can just do meh. I don't care. doesn't matter. Anything. And maybe Christmas, you're just not feeling this year, and maybe this is the shirt that you need to buy for yourself. It's just the meh. Merry Christmas. Yeah, you're just not feeling it, right? So that's meh, all right? That's that, that's that term we use to describe the mood of our culture. I don't want to commit. I don't want to say it was good or bad. I don't want to be this or that. I just want to follow the middle. I just want to be meh, right? Very good. I just want to be that. And so that's what I want to move us from. Because even as Christians, we can get rather meh about Christmas, right? Because I'll be honest with you, four months ago, I was not real thrilled about preaching Christmas again, right? Not because I don't like the story. I love the story, but you all have heard it already, right? And when you've heard something over and over and over again, you just begin to get a little meh to it, right? And so there's that sense in which I want to move that forward in our life by, by reminding us of the reasons behind it, of the reminding us of the firm foundation that we stand on when we have faith. And I hope to maybe stimulate your minds with that a little bit, okay? And so 
Tyler did a wonderful job last week of asking the question and making us wrestle with the question that we're going to start with here today, and that's who is Jesus? He showed us one of those man-on-the-street interview videos where they go around and just ask, okay, what, who's Jesus? What do you think of Jesus? And if you were here and you saw that video, probably 90% of the people responded with a meh question, with an answer, right? It was, what do you think of Jesus? Eh, not a bad guy. Maybe he existed, maybe he didn't. Nobody special. I'm not going to orient my life around him. It was just a lot of meh. Not a big deal. And yet, really, that, if you're a Christian and you watch that video, that's discouraging to you. It's like, you have found something that is beautiful and valuable and precious to you, and for somebody to think Jesus is just, meh, that's discouraging. But really, that shouldn't surprise us, because the Bible said that really life is really defined, be, be divided between those who doubt and downplay Jesus and those who discern his greatness and then decide to follow. And so life is very much separated into those two camps. And so what I want to do is I want to nudge us more towards the discovering how real and how good and how valuable he was so that we will be more devoted to him. And Tyler used this quote from C.S. Lewis. I want to share part of it. Uh, talks about this, that a man who was merely a man, speaking of Jesus, and who said the sort of things that he did would not be a great moral teacher. In other words, you just can't say, nah, not a big deal. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. So we have to ask the question, who is this Jesus guy that this whole season is oriented around? Who is he? And so my hope in this season is to help you take that step from meh to moved and motivated by truth about who Jesus is, his story, the foundational principles behind it, that Jesus was real, who he was, what he taught, what he did was real, that matters even today. And I want to do something that this Christmas that I, I pray will simply boost your confidence and your assurance in who Jesus is. And so I hope that I'll move you in the direction of a more confident follower of Jesus over these next few weeks, okay? And so in order to do that, I want us to look at what Luke began his gospel with. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all four of those counts of Jesus' life. But I love Luke. It's my favorite gospel um, because of how Luke writes. And I love what Luke begins with the first four verses. I want to read them for you and with you. And I want you to look at the detail that he puts into his his beginning of his letter, his account, his document that says, this is who Jesus Christ was. He says this, beginning in verse one. Now many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. And I underline that word because when you think, what's the, the background? What's the, the basis for belief? That, that idea of what God has fulfilled certainly is a part of that foundational um, evidence and belief system that God has been at work. He goes on to say, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And so there's fulfillment things, there's eyewitness things. He goes on to say, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, note that phrase, he is careful, he is detailed, and as you keep reading his letter, what you're going to find is that Luke is right about that. His details, the things he writes about, he's giving you names of governors, he's giving you locations, he's giving you time stamps, he's giving you all kinds of things that you can mark the life of Jesus by and tie it into a real world with real life experiences, okay? Just this week, a lot of people doubted the existence of Pontius Pilate for, for a long time 
But people who were digging around in, the, in, in Israel 50 years ago found this ring, and they just now, there's an article this week about how they just found, figured out how to encode it, and it was a ring that belonged to Pontius Pilate or his family. It had his name on it. And so as you begin, to, to, history has always doubted Luke and his historical references and the things that he says and did, uh, talks about. Um, but time after time, as you dig, you begin to find that Luke was right on with what he was saying. He was right about names, places, people, events. He knew what he was doing. So he carefully investigated that, okay? That adds, adds to our, our belief system. And so I decided too then to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And so my goal for us is just to grow in confidence, to grow in certainty, to be able to say of our faith, I know more why I believe. I'm more confident about why I believe it. And people may make fun of that. People may not understand that. People may not like it. And that's okay. But I, I know why I believe it. And I'm going to stick with it. Okay, I'm going to hold on a little bit tighter. And so if you were to continue to read Luke's gospel, what you will find is that there are so many other details that anchor his story into real time, into a real world. And we're going to get to that in the next few weeks. Um, but here's what I just want you to know, that when you approach the stories of God's word, so much of it can be tested and thus it can be trusted. And so today, I just with the remaining moments we have left, I just want to ask a question. It's not a simple question. It's actually a very profound, deep question, but it's a question that we're not going to spend a lot of time with, but, and it's probably a question when you hear it, you're going to think, I already know the answer to this. I already believe something about this, but here's the question I want us to think about today, and it's simply this. Did Jesus really exist? Luke says he's going to tell you a story about Jesus, and that's what he goes on to do, and he spends the next 24 chapters telling you a story about a man by the name of Jesus. But if you look around you and listen to the critics and the skeptics that live around us, they make us begin to ask, can I be confident that he really lived? Is the Bible the only document that says Jesus was a person in this world? Is the Bible the only evidence that I have about Jesus or are there other sources that point towards his life, his existence? Are there any footprints in history, not real footprints, but just historical moments and footprints that would, that would help us be confident that Jesus really was a man who lived in our world like the Bible says he was? Now again, that may not be a question that you lose sleep wrestling with, okay? That may be something that's been settled in your mind a long, long time ago, and that's okay. I'm happy if that's where you're at. But if you've got kids, if you've got grandkids, uh, if you go to work, if you interact with the world at all, you're going to interact with people who are going to be skeptical. They're going to be doubtful. Send our kids to school, to college, and, and they're going to come across people that are going to say, hey, this whole Jesus thing, it's, it's not real, right? This whole Bible thing, you can't trust that. You can't believe that. And so that's why this question, I think, matters. So maybe this isn't for you. Maybe it's for you to pass on to someone else. Maybe it's so you can be confident with somebody else in your life. Um, but I think the question is a great place to start when we think about when we're going to dig into the Christmas story. The first question we need to ask, was there really a Jesus? And so let's approach it from this perspective. Lee Strobel is the guy who kind of got me thinking along these, these paths. He wrote a little book, and it's one of my favorite books because it's less than 100 pages. Those are my favorite books. It was called uh, The Case for Christmas. And, and he kind of went through his other, other materials and gleaned uh, uh, some articles and things and put together this little book that just talked about some of the evidences for why we should believe in the Christ of Christmas. And as he did so, he, he kind of talked about three realities um, that we're going to talk about one of them for time's sake today. You kind of talk, like if you look at the life of Jesus from a, a, poly, a, a, a what's the, a, 
Apologetic. See, it's a big word. I can't say those big words. I got to go back to Chris. There you go. Apologetic. I need it spelled out in the shovels for me. Apologetics perspective. Thank you. Um, uh, that we, need, we can look, look, at, look at his life from three different points if you were to make a timeline, okay? Point A, the first point in the timeline would be this. Point A, that he was alive. Uh, that he was alive. Uh, point B was that he was dead and he buried. And some people think, well, Jesus didn't really die. He just kind of passed out in the cross. And then when he got in the, cro- in the tomb, he kind of revived and, and, and he walked out of the tomb by himself. And that's why the tomb was empty. Um, well, that's a, a sermon from the other day. But point C, he was alive again. And so really, if you need to understand the life of Christ, he was alive. He was real. He was a person. He was dead and buried. And then he rose again. And so if you're going to really un- uh, um, make a case for the Christ of the Bible, those are the three things you kind of have to, to drill down into. And so we're going to drill down on point A, okay? The point A in that life, I just want us to ask the question, is there evidence, and again, the Bible is, good, is a good testimony, but is there evidence outside of that that points us to the reality of Jesus being alive? And some people would say, no, there's not. People like Thomas Paine, who lived during the age of the American Revolution, he wrote a book, um, called Common Sense in the Age of Reason. And he concluded this about the story and the person of Jesus. There is no history written at the time of Jesus Christ, at the time Jesus Christ is said to have lived that speaks of the existence of such a person, even such a man. And so Thomas Paine, as he wrote and circulated around, his belief system was very much that the Bible says it, but again, he's coming from a rational perspective that we can't believe in miracles, so that immediately throws the Bible out. So there's no evidence left that Jesus ever lived on this earth. Fast forward a little further in time, Bertrand Russell in the 20th century would say this, historically, it is quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all, and if he did, we really know nothing about him. Uh, so again, if, you, if you're tuning in your specials on TV that are going to talk about Jesus, they're going to come from these kinds of perspectives, finding the real Jesus, because their implication is the Bible's version of Jesus can't be real. Albert Schweitzer, also in the 20th century, would say this in the quest for the historical Jesus, to the Jesus of Nazareth who came forward as Messiah, who preached the ethic of the kingdom of God, who founded the kingdom of heaven upon earth and died to give his final work, its final consecration, never existed. And we could go on and on. Just do a search on Google. You'll find lots of articles from people saying Jesus never wasn't a real man, didn't really exist, and on and on they will go. But I'd like to make the opposite case, though. That yes, those people have their articles and their opinions, but in reality, the actual history doesn't agree with that. That actual history and actual studying of things shows that there was a guy by the name of Jesus, and we learn it from, from a guy, from two different guys, Roman historians. One of them is named Cornelius Tacitus. Now, this is not to be confused with Yukon Cornelius if you're watching the Rudolph special, okay? Um, so that's just a little humor to keep you engaged here, okay? Uh, we're a little heady today, so I needed that little joke. And so, But the Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus lived during the first century, and he lived during the time of six different emperors who ruled over Rome, and he was a history man. So he wrote history about who Jesus was, or who, who, what was going on in the Roman Empire, excuse me. And in the midst of that, he made reference to some things that were happening in Rome related to this man by the name he's going to call Christus, okay? And so let's kind of set the stage, though. The 
time period we're talking about is the, is the history of Nero. If you know Nero's name, uh, you don't have to be a, a church person to know that, that Nero was a pretty wicked guy, pretty evil guy, did a lot of bad things, barbaric things. And one of the things Nero did during his rule is he wanted to remodel his city of Rome. And so he set a fire, burned it to the ground, and then everybody in town got upset because Nero, we were blaming Nero for burning the city down. So Nero needed a scapegoat. He needed somebody to be able to say, it wasn't me, it was them. And so Tacitus um, tells us this in his, in his history books, okay? Consequently, he says this, consequently, to get rid of the report, what's the report? The report that said Nero was responsible for burning Rome. So to get rid of that report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures. So he went... He went he brought all of his justice, all of his power on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Now let's just pause there a second. Think about what's going on here, okay? Think about it to where we're at in time. Jesus supposedly lived from 30 to 33 AD, his ministry was at least, died in around 30 AD, somewhere in that time frame. Nero, late 50s, early 60s. You're talking a time period of 30 years in there, okay? And so think about... And today, if you and I were to go to Jerusalem, Judea, where Jesus lived, go to Rome, we could get there in a matter of hours, right? Hop on a plane, you get there very quickly. But this isn't that time, right? This is a time when things traveled slowly, information spread slowly, things happen at a much slower pace. But you're talking just a short 30-year window. There were enough people who knew about this person, Jesus, and who were worshiping Jesus enough to take on his name that had gone all the way from Judea all the way to Rome, 1,400 miles away. And there were enough Christians living in Jerusalem by this time for Nero to be able to say, it wasn't me, it was this group of people. Now, there's a weird phrase there, just for reference sake. They were hated for their abominations. What's that about? Were the Christians like terrible people? Well, if you were a Roman, you'd never heard of this whole Jesus thing before. You'd never heard of Christians before. And these Christians did really weird things from their perspective. First of all, they didn't believe in the Roman gods. They didn't believe in worshiping Caesar. And so the Romans called them atheists because they did not believe the Roman gods. They believed in some other god. They, so they called them atheists and thought that was a terrible thing. And they also got together early in the morning before work or late in the evenings, and, and they would have these meals where they would eat flesh and drink blood, and that just seemed like a really barbaric thing to do. And, and you and I know that that's communion, right? You and I just did it. But if for a stranger who has no idea, why are these people having this ceremony where they're eating, eating flesh and drinking blood? That's just really barbaric, and they just really look down on these Christians for a lot of reasons because of the things that they did that they didn't understand. And so, but again, get the perspective here. One of the attacks that oftentimes comes towards Jesus or the biblical Jesus is that Jesus was an invention of much later time. That the Jesus that may have lived in the first century was not the same Jesus that we read about later in the Bible. Because over time, 50, 60, 70, 100 years, that there's this church conference and these church leaders are trying to maintain power. And so in order to do that, they make this Jesus who fits their mold. And, and that all takes a lot of time. Because why? Because there's all these eyewitnesses who lived in the time of Jesus that you can't just invent myth. You can't just invent stories because there were people there that would have contradicted that. But here you have a Roman historian who is not a Christian, has no dog in the fight, no cat, if you want to put it that from the previous picture. No cat in the fight. Um, 
but he's just talking about what he's seeing. There's this group of people that are already in Rome, worshipers of Jesus. Now, he goes on to say this in his writing. Christus, is a Latin version of Christ, from whom the name has its origin. There's your historical reference if you're looking for one. If it is, did Christ exist? Would this guy Jesus exist that created all this momentum and all these things, that footprint that we'll talk about in the weeks to come? Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition. What's the superstition that, that grew up from a Roman? Again, this is from a Roman perspective, looking at what these people believed, that a dead man, what? He rose again. And from a Roman perspective, that's the craziest thing ever because dead people stay dead. They don't come back to life. But there's this, again, this acknowledgement from a Roman perspective that Jesus lived in Palestine in Judea under the rule of Pontius Pilate was crucified that's, that's the extreme penalty and the the story goes that he rose again and then again broke out and th thus checked for the moment again they kind of snuffed it out at first but then broke out again not only in Judea but in the first source of evil but even in Rome so this story spread all over the Ro Roman Empire of this man by the name of Jesus Christ and his worshipers and his followers spread from Judea and just went everywhere with this message about Christ. And so you look at that and you think, okay, if I didn't have a Bible, there was no Bible, I wouldn't have enough in that story to become a worshiper, become a Christian, but I have enough in that story to know there's a man named Jesus who lived in Judea, who lived under the rule of Pontius Pilate, and he was crucified, and the story goes that he rose again. And there's these people who went everywhere following and doing, living underneath his name. And so, again, that's not a Bible thing. That's just a Roman historian recording what he's seeing and hearing and witnessing from history. And so, another Roman historian, just a little couple of other things I'll throw in here. Another Roman historian, a guy by the name of uh, Suetonius, would say this. Um, As the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, again, the, from a Roman perspective, Jews and Christians were the same people. And again, that's what we, we came out of the same faith tradition, right? We're all Jews, and Jesus was a Jewish man. And so the early Christians were just viewed as kind of a sect of the Judea, Judea, Jewish faith. And so Claudius, the emperor, sees this, this trouble that the Jews kept picking on the Christians, is what's going on here. And so he expels them all from Rome. You think, well, is there anything that else would corroborate that? Well, lo and behold, you open your Bible to the book of Acts. It should say Acts chapter 18, not Luke 18 of the next verse. So Acts 18. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. All right, so you put these things together that, that the two histories are not separate, that the Bible's not some later invention. The story of Christ is not some later invention. The story is contemporary with these things that history is telling us about. Suetonius would also say this, that punishment was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. So again, from a Roman perspective, all this Christianity stuff was just a weird superstition. But what is it doing? It's telling you that the, the teachings, the ideas of Jesus living, dying, and rising again, and this group of people who were worshiping because of it, it was there just a couple of three decades at the most after the time of Jesus, far away. Okay? And it traveled 400, 1,400 miles to get to it in Rome. And that's by flying, not going by land. All right? And so you look at that information, and I think the conclusions of others who say things like this, I can agree with. Paul Myers is a historian. He said this, the total evidence is so overwhelming, so absolute, 
that, the only, that only the shallowest of intellects would dare to deny Jesus' existence. And so when we ask the basic question, did Jesus exist? Yeah, he did. He was a real man, both not just because the Bible says so, but because history points in that direction. We'll look at other things that fill in around that too. Our Joseph Hoffman would say this, and he's an, athe- he's an atheistic uh, historian. He's not, he isn't trying to defend the Bible, but he would simply say this, only in the age of instant misinformation and net attack is this kind of lunacy possible. Only in the atheistic universe where the major, major premise is that religion is a lie. And so when you're studying religion, it's the study of lies. Is this kind of lunacy even possible? So again, if you're coming from a perspective that starts with, well, all religion is miracle-based and so it has to go away, that's where you end up with that. And finally, Bart Ertman said this, the claim that Jesus was simply made up falters on every ground. Jesus existed and those vocal persons who do not admit it do so not because they have considered the evidence with the dispassionate eye of the historian, but, and note this phrase, but because they have some other agenda that this denial serves. And that's where I want to get to where we're going to finish here, okay? I, I, love, I don't love that statement, but I, I appreciate that because we tend, all of us do it, Christians do it too, but we tend to kind of make up our mind and we build a case to it sometimes. Um, and certainly you can do that for the denial of God, the denial that Jesus existed. You can build a case if you start there, well, Jesus couldn't have existed. And the reason I don't want Jesus to exist because if Jesus is there, that changes the way I have to look at my life. If a guy lived, died, rose again, then that probably gives him some level of authority to tell me how my life should be lived at some level of, of existence. But if I can just say he never existed, that can't have happened, he was never real, then all of a sudden I am free. And, and I have some quotes that will kind of show you that here in a second. So there's two key sticking points I think that I want you to finish with here. Now we'll, go, we'll come back to these more later, but just let me throw them out to you so you can think about them. I think two key sticking points that oftentimes get us and get us that keep us from just really going forward with with where this is going to take us number one some people approach God but they have the sticking point of I just can't believe it I can't believe it maybe it's intellectual maybe there are intellectual things from the realm of science or other things that that it's just hard to to get past some things that you learn in class and and that may be the case maybe that's why it's hard maybe it's pain this is probably the biggest one that my life has been hard in some level, some terrible thing has happened to me, and I don't understand where God was in all of that. And because it's painful, I just, I can't believe in God because of it. Or maybe it's, I prayed to God for success, but all I got was failure, and where was God? He didn't answer my prayers, and we can make a list of things. But there are barriers that oftentimes keep us from believing. Thomas's disciple, Jesus' disciple, Thomas, excuse me, wrestled with the same thing. And so I want us to think that just because I have a hard time getting to a place of belief doesn't mean I can't get to a place of belief because look where Thomas begins in John 20, verse 25. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the the nail marks and put put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So where's Thomas beginning? He's beginning at a place of disbelief. He's got an intellectual barrier that says, you guys may say you've seen him, but I just can't see that. I can't believe that. And yet, over time, uh, his belief is fortified. He becomes confident as he sees Christ soon. And so here's what I would ask, if that's where you're at. If you think about this whole issue of, of faith in Christ, and maybe you're at a place of struggling or doubting, here's what I would just ask you to do. I would just ask you to do what Jeremiah 29, verse 13 
asks of us. It says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your hearts. I would just ask for you over these next few weeks to just go on a journey, just follow the evidence, just listen to what it says. And then even better, there's 24 chapters in the book of Luke and we're already December 2nd, so you missed yesterday. But if you start today with a chapter, you're gonna be done by Christmas day. Just reading through the story of what Luke is, is introduced to us. Is I wrote this so that there would be more certainty, more confidence to your faith. And, and maybe if you took a chapter a day and began to read through that, and just see where that takes you as you consider who Christ is. Number two, the second thing, sometimes we, our second point is simply, I don't want to believe. I don't want to believe. Sometimes, I remember I was in Taiwan in college on a missions trip, an internship, and I spent the whole summer there. And there was a guy by the name of David who I spent my entire summer trying to build a friendship with. We'd had great conversations about God and Christ and all these things. And finally got to the place where he just needed to make a decision. And we spent two hours talking Two hours talking about who Jesus was, reviewing things that we had talked about all summer long, and, but he just kept bringing up the same arguments. And it wasn't an intellectual, I don't know the answers, questions. It was, I don't want this to be true because I don't like the ramifications for my life, the changes I'll have to make, the ways I'm accountable to God if this is true. I don't want to surrender, and so I'll just keep giving questions that keep this at arm's length. And that's what many people will do in order to, instead of following, they will push away. And that's exactly what G John was describing in John chapter three, verse 19 through 20. That this is the verdict that light has come into the world. In other words, Christ has come. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. All right, and they're a part of all of us that the fear of having to walk into the light of God's truth, God's holiness, there's a part of all of us that says, that's uncomfortable, that's scary, I don't want to have to do that. But that's where change happens. Belief in Christ calls us to step into the light, to face the truth of God's word, but also that's where we find the grace that begins to change us as well. I'll finish with two things. A quote from Aldous Huxley, um, who wrote some book I think I wrote in high school, I read in high school, and I can't remember which one it is now, but he wrote and said this about his philosophy um, that basically he was just pursued a philosophy that there is no meaning, there is no God, there is no Jesus, that life is just meaningless. And this, I love his honesty when he says, this is why we went this direction. He says, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and it consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. In other words, it's not simply an intellectual argument. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do, Right? See, that leads us that I don't want there to be a God because I want freedom to live however I want. And for him, it was sexual freedom, other things that, that were, um, he just didn't want the restraints that God brought. And so he wrote God out of the story. He finishes his quote with this. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. In other words, if we get rid of God, make life meaningless, I can do whatever I want. I don't have to worry about it. And so that's the driving motivation. That Sometimes when we get to those places, sometimes I have trouble believing because of real issues, but sometimes I won't because it's a matter of the will. 
And so I'll finish with this verse. I read from John 3, 19 a moment ago, but I want to back up a few verses and remind us on a word of hope here that as we move forward into what the rest of this will be, I just want you to know that no matter whether you're struggling to believe because of pain, because of confusion, because of intellectual things, or maybe you're just stubborn and you're just pushing back on God, I I just want you to, to hear what God would say to us, to all of us. For God so loved the world, a world that would hide from him, a world that would ultimately crucify him, a world that oftentimes thought little of him. Some of them would write him out of the story. For God so loved that world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. And maybe as you talk with your friends and you're talking with people that maybe aren't in a place of faith right now, maybe remember that. God didn't come to you or I when we were struggling with faith say, you know what, I'm done with you. I don't need you. He was patient with us. He didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so the good news of Christmas is that you begin to dig it up and you find a God who, even though we are oftentimes slow to belief and stubborn in our disobedience and willful in our sin, there is a God who sends his son to die for us so that we might have life in him. And so I hope that as you proceed into this Christmas season, that you will keep that as the forefront of your mind. If maybe you're with people and maybe they attack you for your faith, maybe they make fun of your faith for, Chris, for Jesus in this season. But I just hope the same heart that God had towards you and me would be the same heart that we're filled with. And said, so, you know what? You may not believe, but I'm gonna love you. I'm gonna give and I'm gonna be what best I can be for you to be a witness to you. And so would you pray with me, please?